I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. An experiment on America's best and brightest that goes horribly wrong. The guards began to use physical punishment, humiliation. A pair of handcuffs designed to trap the greatest magician in the world. There's a guy that did the impossible. He did things that nobody else could do. And a groundbreaking journey into space that turns into tragedy. When Mission Control looked up at their monitors, they saw flame. I'm Don Wildman. Join me on a journey across the United States as we go deep into the vaults of the nation's most revered institutions. Unearthing wondrous treasures from the past, extraordinary artifacts, and bizarre relics. Each with a shocking story to tell and a secret to be revealed. These are the mysteries at the museum. Akron, Ohio. The city of invention is home to a museum which celebrates the study of the human brain the University of Akron's Center for the History of Psychology. This museum contains the largest collection of artifacts on psychology in the world. And a relic of one of the most controversial and horrifying studies of all time. One which museum director Dave Baker finds truly shocking. I thought, how could that possibly happen? A khaki work uniform a pair of aviator sunglasses, and a wooden billy club. These simple items of clothing were part of an extraordinary science experiment that delved into the darkest realms of the human psyche. What was this experiment, and how did it go so horribly wrong? August 1971, Palo Alto, California. Nine white males are suddenly seized from their homes, these young men were arrested with no criminal record. And there they were, being put up against a police car, handcuffed and uh, taken away. Their destination? Stanford County Prison. They were then introduced to their jailers. But these jailers are not what they seem. And neither is the prison where they work. The guards, believe it or not, were their fellow classmates. And the prison is part of a prestigious university. 
The Stanford County Prison, in reality, was a mock prison created in the basement of the psychology department at Stanford University. For the next two weeks, students will be held in this unorthodox jailhouse in the interests of science. The study was conducted by Stanford psychologist and professor Phil Zimbardo, who was going to study the psychology of prison life. Funded by the U.S. Navy, the experiment hopes to reveal the causes of conflict between military guards and prisoners. The students had responded to an ad for an experiment where they would be paid $15 a day. Volunteers are randomly divided and assigned a role, guard or prisoner. The only thing that separates the two groups, their uniforms. These were America's best and brightest. Day one, the inmates enter the prison. They are in high spirits, laughing and joking amongst themselves. But their guards don't see the funny side. Hey! I don't want anybody laughing! It is clear that this will be tougher than the inmates had thought. Throughout the first night, the inmates are kept awake as the guards conduct mandatory counts. The following morning, the prisoners are tired and frustrated. This simulation is not the cakewalk they envisioned. They begin to fight back. The prisoners stripped off the numbers from their uniforms, barricaded themselves using their mattresses in their cells, and revolted against the authority of the guards. And the guards respond with violence. They decided that they would take action. They were brandishing their billy clubs, and they actually discharged fire extinguishers into the cells to calm the inmates and control them. The prison security is restored, but the guards don't stop there. Their job is to maintain order, and that's what they're going to do whatever it takes. The guards began to use physical punishment, humiliation. You get and the situation continued to just spiral out of control. As the days go by, the guards acquire a taste for their newfound authority. They would strip search them, putting bags over their heads. Things were going too far. Finally, one inmate decides he's had enough. At lunchtime on day five, prisoner 416 refuses to eat. And for his pains, the guards throw the uncooperative inmate into solitary confinement. 416, you're going to be in there for a while. So just get used to it. The guards were playing their roles as the guards, but to an extreme. And things stay that way until the following day. It was really heading towards catastrophe. Half of the prisoners are so traumatized by the process that researchers are forced to release them early. And a mere six days into the two-week study, the project is shut down. But researchers are left with one perplexing question. Why did the guards become so brutal so fast? The students that were selected for the study had completed a rather thorough screening all showed no signs of any mental illness, substance abuse problems, criminal history. The only thing that did separate the two groups was their uniforms. The prisoners were forced to wear an emasculating smock without undergarments. But the guard's uniform was far from degrading. The military-style shirt, the aviator sunglasses, and the billy club were symbols of power. And those were chosen especially 
It gave them a much more impersonal and authoritarian look. The research team argues that these trappings of authority played a key part in transforming the behavior of the prison guards. You really become that person once you put on that khaki uniform, you put on the glasses, you put on, you take the nightstick and, you know, you, you act the part. Even Professor Zimbardo himself was caught up in the experiment, losing sight of his role as psychologist and allowing the abuse to continue for too long. And this khaki uniform on display at the University of Akron's Center for the History of Psychology sat at the center of it all. A simple outfit that may have helped bring out the worst in a group of volunteers who took part in one of the most controversial psychological experiments ever conducted. At the Houdini Museum in Scranton, Pennsylvania, hundreds of rare and mysterious artifacts shed light on the secrets of the legendary escapologist Harry Houdini. But among the showbills, straitjackets, and stage props, one object stands out. Cast in steel and weighing over three pounds, it's an exact replica of an unusual and infamous restraining device known as the Mirror Handcuffs. A British newspaper called The Daily Mirror commissioned them for one purpose, to defeat Houdini. Houdini escaped from a lot of handcuffs, thousands, but none of them were quite like this one. Dorothy Dietrich is the founder of the Houdini Museum. There is absolutely no way to get to the keyway. There's no way for you to pick them. But are these handcuffs really unpickable? 1904. Harry Houdini is the most famous magician in the world. His trademark? Escaping chains, locks, and handcuffs. There's a guy that did the impossible. He did things that nobody else could do. His astounding feats earn him the title, the Handcuff King. But with success comes a different kind of challenge. By the year 1903, there were so many handcuff kings all over the world and imitators, people who were not just doing the act, but stealing the name. To set himself apart from his imitators, Houdini announces that he will attempt any escape that is presented to him. But he never imagined a challenge like the one he is about to face. Houdini is performing in London and a gentleman comes up in the audience and says that he would like to challenge Houdini to get out of these special cuffs. The man says he is a journalist from the London newspaper, The Daily Mirror. He said that an expert locksmith, Nathaniel Hart, had worked five years to create these cuffs. The cuffs have a complex locking system made up of two nested locking devices. The reporter claims they are escape-proof. Houdini wasn't someone that would back down from a challenge. The performance is set for the following week. To promote the event, the Daily Mirror launches a massive advertising campaign. The town was buzzing. Nobody really wanted to see Houdini fail. But if he did fail, they would want to be there when it happened. March 17, 1904. 4,000 fans and dozens of journalists converge on London's Hippodrome Theatre. Under the watchful eyes of a committee of judges, a representative from the mirror snaps on the steel restraints. 
Houdini steps behind a special screen. The audience couldn't see what he was doing. And every once in a while, he'd pop his head out, and the audience would think, oh, is he free now? But after 30 minutes, the master of escape is still struggling to free himself. At one point, he asks for a glass of water, and uh, his knees are starting to give, give way. So he asks for a pillow for his knees, and they come out with a pillow. After battling the restraints for 60 grueling minutes, Houdini is bruised, exhausted, and on the verge of collapse, leaving the audience to wonder, could this be the challenge that will finally defeat the great Houdini? One of the most amazing escapes that Harry Houdini ever attempted involved a pair of supposedly unpickable handcuffs. They were presented to Houdini as a challenge by a journalist from England's Daily Mirror newspaper. Could an escape from these cuffs finally be the stunt that stumps Houdini? The crowd in London's Hippodrome Theatre is convinced they are about to witness the unthinkable. Harry Houdini's only failed escape. After more than an hour of wrestling with the mirror handcuffs, the master of magic emerges from behind his screen to face his spellbound audience. Free of the supposedly unpickable mirror handcuffs, the crowd goes wild. And the crowd lifted him up and carried him around on their shoulders. They were just so thrilled that he got free. All 30 of the city's dailies report on Houdini's astounding success. But almost immediately, rumors start to circulate that the performance was no more than a masterful act of self-promotion, staged by Harry Houdini himself. And there's evidence that the rumors are true. As it turns out, the mirror handcuffs are not adjustable, suggesting they were custom-made to fit Houdini's wrists. And the locksmith, who is said to have designed them, an Englishman named Nathaniel Hart, can't be found. The census records at the time doesn't show any Nathaniel Hart existing. And finally, there are reports that in the days before the Mirror Challenge, Houdini made several secret visits to Lord Alfred Charles Harmsworth, the publisher and owner of the Daily Mirror. That was his opportunity to get to the cuffs and get a copy of the key made. But how did Houdini sneak the key past the judges? Some people think it was concealed in the pillow he kneeled on or hidden in the glass of water he was given during the performance. But no one can confirm the stories. And at the Houdini Museum in Scranton, Pennsylvania, this replica of the mirror handcuffs is a reminder of one of his most controversial stunts. There's no denying that Harry Houdini was a master of escape, but he was also an expert in another equally important field, self-promotion. Laramie, Wyoming. Barely a hundred years ago, this was the Wild West. Today, the legends of that era are celebrated at the American Heritage Center at the University of Wyoming. And no artifact here is more intriguing than this recently acquired manuscript. 
It's almost 200 pages long and bears the title, The Bandit Invincible. According to historian Larry Pointer, these pages may forever change what we believe about the life and death of the man known as the Robin Hood of the West. The Bandit Invincible is the real story of Butch Cassidy. The account was written in 1934, 25 years after Butch Cassidy is said to have died in a shootout in South America. But in its pages are intimate and emotional details about Cassidy's life and crimes. Details that Pointer is certain have not appeared in any other written record. So how did its author, an unassuming businessman named William T. Phillips, come to know so much about Butch Cassidy? The thing that strikes you immediately is, how could William T. Phillips have known Butch Cassidy so well? Who was William T. Phillips? And was he, in fact, Butch Cassidy himself? It's the 1890s, the American West. Gangs of outlaws rule the open range. And one of the most intrepid is the notorious Wild Bunch. But they got into bank robberies, payroll robberies, train robberies. And the mastermind behind it all is Butch Cassidy. He was the field marshal. He orchestrated it all, all the logistics. The gang's other infamous member is Cassidy's friend, Harry Longabaugh, alias the Sundance Kid. But in 1900, a special posse is formed to capture Cassidy and his gang. Feeling the heat, they flee, only to resurface on a new frontier, Argentina. Robberies began to occur in Argentina that had all the hallmarks of Butch Cassidy's trademark, well-planned, well-executed. And then at the end of 1905, the gang disappears from Argentina. But three years later, an incident in the South American country of Bolivia puts the outlaws back in the spotlight. November 4th, San Vicente. A courier delivering a fortune in payroll cash to the remote Aramayo silver mine is ambushed by two American bandits who flee with the loot. Bolivian soldiers track the bandits to their hideout. After a long standoff, two gunshots ring out inside the house, followed by silence. One outlaw was shot in the head. The other one lying beside him was shot in the side of the head. It appeared the second had killed his partner and then committed suicide. The bandits are labeled as John Doe's, or Ningun Nombres. But then an American mine worker living nearby claims he knows who the dead men are. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Could this be a case of mistaken identity? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The story of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and how they met their fate is one of the most famous tales of the Wild West. But did Butch and Sundance really die in a South American shootout? Or did they escape? At the American Heritage Center in Wyoming, an aging manuscript called The Bandit Invincible may hold the answer. 1934, Spokane, Washington. Businessman William T. Phillips is writing a 200-page manuscript called The Bandit Invincible. It's a biography of Butch Cassidy. But Phillips' dream of publishing the book is never realized. He died in 1937 of cancer. It's almost 75 years later when the full manuscript is discovered by a rare books dealer. In its pages is an extraordinary claim. Butch Cassidy did not die in Bolivia. According to Phillips, Cassidy escaped from South America with an ingenious plan. He claims that Butch Cassidy went to Paris and had facial surgery. After the procedure, the book states, Cassidy made a fresh start in the American West. It seems like an audacious claim, but could there be some truth to it? And how did a law-abiding businessman know so much about a notorious outlaw? Was William T. Phillips actually Butch Cassidy himself? In this manuscript are details that only one who had been involved in each of those robberies in North and South America, those places, those hideouts, those people, would have known. And Phillips owns an engraved ring that seems to be the one that Cassidy once gave to a sweetheart, along with a pistol with the outlaw's brand carved onto the handle. Could Butch Cassidy's final work have been this manuscript, written under this assumed name? 
It seems unlikely that anyone will ever know for sure whether Butch Cassidy and William T. Phillips are one and the same. But here at the American Heritage Center, this detailed manuscript helps keep his legend alive. Just 40 miles north of Atlanta, Georgia, in the small town of Cartersville, is the TELUS Science Museum. TELUS houses a 120,000-square-foot planetarium, dinosaurs, and other scientific wonders. But among all its dazzling displays, one towers above the rest. It's a 12-foot-tall and 12-foot-wide cone-shaped capsule. When you first walk up to the capsule, you'll see a very shiny white-looking outside, and you'll see a decal of the USA and the United States flag. But when curator Julian Gray tells the history of this spaceship, it's a story laden with tragedy. This replica, built for Tom Hanks' miniseries From Earth to the Moon, was used to dramatize the story of the first manned mission of the Apollo Lunar Landing Program. A mission that went horribly wrong. What happened to this capsule? And how did this pivotal event change America's space program forever? We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. January 1967, Cape Canaveral, Florida. Less than five years after President Kennedy challenges America to put a man on the moon by the end of the 1960s, his dream seems close to becoming a reality. In 1967, we were a month away from launching the first uh, spacecraft, Apollo 1, and hopes were very high. We were racing to get to the moon. For the Apollo 1 mission, NASA chooses three of its best and brightest. Astronauts Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee. They have been training for this spaceflight for months, and today is their final test simulation. On January 27, 1967, the crew boarded the spacecraft as they would on launch day and closed the hatch, pressurized it, um, in a test what was referred to as a plugs-out test. So the plugs-out test is supposed to simulate the conditions that they would experience during launch and in flight with 100% oxygen under pressure. At 1 p.m., the three astronauts board the spaceship, are strapped into their seats, and prepare themselves for a day of dress rehearsals. But right away, things don't go as planned. When Gus Grissom entered the spacecraft and connected his air hose to the systems, he noticed a sour smell. He said it was like sour milk, like buttermilk. The tech crew can't figure out the source of this mysterious smell. But when new oxygen is introduced into Grissom's air hose, the smell goes away, and everyone thinks the problem is solved. But then, just 10 minutes before simulated liftoff, a new issue arises. The astronauts and mission control can't hear each other over their headsets. This test had been going on for a number of hours now, and the astronauts were becoming quite frustrated. And Gus Grissom finally says, how are we going to go to the moon if we can't even talk between three buildings? But no one, not the astronauts, nor the ground crew, nor the millions of Americans who are anticipating this monumental launch can possibly imagine what is about to unfold. 
just as the mechanics re-established communication with the crew. Suddenly, from within the cockpit, a cry for help rings out. The first cry of help was, uh, we believe that was from Gus Grissom and cried fire. There was a fire in the cockpit. When Mission Control looked up at their monitors, they saw flames. A few seconds later, there was an explosion. What happened within the cockpit of Apollo 1? The Apollo 1 mission should have been a groundbreaking journey into space. But instead, on January 27, 1967, during a routine test simulation, things take a sudden and horrifying turn. As the crew gets ready to count down, a fire breaks out inside the cockpit. What happened during this routine simulation to cause it to go so horribly wrong? As NASA workers race to help them, the astronauts struggled desperately to pry open the hatch to their space capsule. They couldn't get close because of the, the, the heat. Capsule quickly filled with flames. By the time the ground crew finally manages to put out the fire and get into the capsule, it's too late. Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee all die that day at Cape Canaveral. The first astronauts ever to pay the ultimate price for America's dreams of conquering space. The House and the Senate launch a massive investigation to answer one central question. Why did this terrible tragedy occur? The Apollo 1 capsule was disassembled with painstaking care to remove and look for anything that might have caused the fire. For weeks, a blue-ribbon panel of scientists and astronauts labors over every single piece of the Apollo 1 spacecraft until they notice something odd. Frayed electrical wires that had been near astronaut Gus Grissom's feet. The scientists examine the wires more closely and conclude that it is possible they caused a spark. That alone would not have been enough to cause a fire. It would have just caused a spark and that would have been it. But scientists also discover that the 34 square feet of Velcro and netting that lined the capsule's walls added fuel to the fire. These were fabrics that burned rapidly when exposed to a chemical compound that had been filling the capsule for five straight hours, pure oxygen. If you know about pure oxygen, it's highly flammable. And the spark was all that was needed to set off a flame and engulf them in a fire that would ultimately take their lives. The worst disaster in NASA's early history, the tragedy of Apollo 1, paves the way for significant safety improvements on future space flights. They replaced the pure oxygen atmosphere that had allowed items like Velcro and netting to burn so easily, and they did a full systems overhaul. With these improvements in place, NASA ultimately accomplishes its goal of putting a man on the moon on July 20th, 1969. And this replica of the Apollo 1 capsule stands as a reminder that that triumphant moment began in the burned out ashes of Apollo 1. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the birthplace of America. In this historical city of new beginnings, our nation gained its freedom. But many criminals also lost theirs, locked away in this fortified stronghold in the center of the city, Eastern State Penitentiary. Once this imposing fortress was believed to be the most secure prison in the country, 
Today, the former jailhouse is a museum, each room kept in a state of preserved ruin. But one 8x12 cell sports a feature that wasn't originally meant to be there. It's maybe a foot and a half deep, foot and a half high. At first, this rough opening appears to be nothing more than a byproduct of deterioration, a mere hole in the wall. But it sits at the center of an ingenious plot, starring one of the greatest escape artists in American criminal history, Willie Sutton. Philadelphia, 1934. One man's flair for bank robbery earns him an impressive reputation. William Francis Sutton was known as Willie the Actor or Slick Willie. Yes, he was a bank robber. He was also really likable. Dressed in intricate disguises, Sutton time and again loots banks for all they're worth. He was almost a folk hero. But his luck is about to run out. In 1934, Sutton is convicted of bank robbery and finds himself facing 25 to 50 years at Eastern State. But Sutton is not one to sit idly behind bars. Willie Sutton used to boast that no prison could hold him. The one thing he loves more than planning how to break into a bank is figuring out how to break out of jail. Just 14 months earlier, Willie Sutton had broken out of Sing Sing, one of the toughest prisons in the United States. So when Sutton arrives at Eastern State, the warden is on high alert. And Willie Sutton said, oh no, warden, I would never. I've learned my lesson. But of course he hadn't. In fact, Sutton tries at least five times to bust out. He was scheming the entire time that he was here, including plans to get over the wall, to sneak out the front. But all of his attempts are foiled. A decade goes by, and it seems Slick Willie has finally met his match. But things are about to change. Spring 1944. World War II is in full swing. And with young, able-bodied men off fighting the war, the prison is understaffed. According to Sutton, it's then that he hatches an audacious new plan to tunnel his way out. With concrete sidewalks surrounding this fortress in every direction, it's easier said than done. But Sutton knows the perfect location from which to start digging. Cell 68. Not only is it closest to the outside wall, but just beyond it lies grass. Cell Block 7, Cell 68, is absolutely the best place in all the prison to dig a tunnel. And inside Cell 68 is the perfect accomplice for the job, Clarence Kleindienst. Clarence Kleindienst was in for a short sentence, and they made him a trustee, someone who gets special responsibilities. He was the prison plaster worker and stonemason. His job is to replaster prison cells in poor condition. Sutton later says he convinced Kleindienst to dig a tunnel. And with tools and a prime location, the inmates put their plan into effect. Because he lives in cell 68, it's Kleindienst who does the bulk of the work. At first, he's confined to digging between the guards' hourly bed checks. Then he comes up with an ingenious ruse. Clarence Kleindens had access to all this plaster, so he used it to make a dummy head. And every night when he went down into the tunnel, his bed would be occupied by this dummy. 
Each morning, Kleinens conceals the hole with a false panel. But hiding the tunnel isn't his only concern. But once Kleinens started, he had a series of enormous challenges ahead of him. The walls of cell 68 are an imposing six feet thick. Once through, Kleinens must tunnel 15 feet down, 97 feet across the prison yard, under the wall, and 15 feet back up. He needs help. And Sutton later claims he was happy to provide it. During the day, on his way to and from his job at the prison psychiatrist's office, Sutton says he would sneak into cell 68 and do some digging. And the guards would not have any idea what was happening right below their feet. Finally, around midnight on April 3, 1945, Kleinden sees grassroots above his head in the tunnel. Now seems like the perfect moment to break free. But Kleindens is not about to leave his friend behind. He went back down the tunnel, basically breaking back into Eastern State Penitentiary, and waited for the morning. Sutton and Kleindens are on the brink of an epic escape. But will their daring plan succeed? It's April 3rd, 1945, Eastern State Penitentiary. Notorious jailbreaker Willie Sutton is on the brink of another audacious escape. According to Sutton, he and his fellow inmate Clarence Kleindunst have been digging a tunnel to freedom for the past year. Now they are ready to put their plan into action. 6 a.m. The prison cells are unlocked. Inmates make their way to breakfast. Now is the time for Willie Sutton and Clarence Kleindunst to make their escape. But they are not alone. Word's gotten out. An additional 10 inmates make a last-minute detour into cell 68. Freedom is in their grasp. But little do they know, the tunnel's exit is at the end of a walking beat for city patrolmen. The first couple guys through the tunnel actually escaped. I mean, they got out of the neighborhood. Willie Sutton was not one of them. As Slick Willie pulls himself out of the hole, he finds himself staring into the faces of shocked policemen. Sutton makes a break for it. But after just a few minutes on the outside, he is cornered several blocks away from Eastern State and brought back into custody. Later that day, his accomplice, Kleindienst, is also caught. All of the men who went through the tunnel that morning were captured within six weeks. For all the preparation they did on this tunnel, they had virtually no plan whatsoever on the other side of the wall. And even though Kleindienst and Sutton each claimed credit for being the masterminds behind the attempt, this roughly hewn hole at Eastern State Penitentiary stands as a reminder of an escape that didn't go according to plan. Crawford, Nebraska. This small town sits on a stretch of prairie known as the Fossil Freeway. Its rugged plains once teemed with amazing creatures, rare and incredible specimens that now fill the galleries of the Trailside Museum of Natural History. Here, among the ancient fossils and bones, is one massive skeleton that stands about 13 feet tall, stretches over 14 feet from head to tail, 
and is armed with tusks almost nine feet long. It's a species of prehistoric elephant that roamed the earth during the last ice age. A docile animal that fed on grass and weighed in at 10 tons. A giant called the mammoth. Mammoths were such huge animals, just the thigh bone alone is almost as big as a person. Yet according to curator Mike Voorhees, what's most impressive about this 12,000-year-old specimen isn't its size, but its grave. When it was unearthed from the Nebraska Badlands, it was lying face-to-face with another mammoth. At first sight, this looks just like a jumble of, of bones and tusks and teeth. You can see there are two complete skeletons with their tusks tangled together. After they were excavated, the two skeletons were separated. Today, one stands upright in this hall, while the other was bisected and lies flat in a cast. We divided it into right and left halves and mounted them in the ground just the way the original skeletons were found. But why were these two peaceful creatures found with their tusks apparently locked in an eternal showdown? The question would spark one of the most enduring mysteries of modern paleontology. It all started in the summer of 1962. Surveyor Ben Ferguson is appraising a potential dam site in the Nebraska Badlands when something stops him in his tracks. An enormous chunk of bone is jutting out of the earth. Ferguson knows he has an unusual bone in his hands and contacts the scientists at the Trailside Museum. We went to check out what Ben had found and soon realized that we had the the hind leg of a mammoth. But the mammoth's leg is just the tip of the iceberg. As the dig continues, scientists make an incredible discovery. It's not just one mammoth, but two. I've never seen anything like it. What they're looking at is the rarest of Ice Age fossils. Two intact male mammoths locked in a death grip. But the scientists are perplexed. We don't think of mammoths as being vicious fighters. So what made these normally placid creatures fight? It would be another 45 years before science could answer that question. In the remote Nebraska Badlands, a man unearths the tangled remains of two massive mammoths. Their tusks are locked together in what appears to be a death grip. But why would these otherwise peaceful creatures, now on display at the Trailside Museum, engage in a fatal battle? It's 2007. The mystery of the dueling mammoths has baffled paleontologist Mike Voorhees for 45 years. At first, Voorhees looked to modern elephants to explain the mammoth's behavior. But he hit a roadblock. When they were first found, very little information was known about modern-day elephant behavior. But since then, research has revealed that the male of this otherwise peaceful species can turn violent. 
the elephant experiences this period of hormonal rage that they call must. And that's about the only time that elephants are really dangerous. So is it possible that the dueling mammoths, ancestors of the modern elephant, were adult males of mating age? Voorhees suspects the answer is buried deep in the core of these giant creatures' tusks. An ivory tusk, it's like a daily diary of the growth of an individual elephant. We cut holes in the tusks and recovered samples of the ivory. And the layers in the tusks reveal the mammoths were each about 40 years old when they died. The right age to suit his theory that they were sexually mature bulls who could have been fighting over a female. But another intriguing question remains. When modern elephants clash, the fight rarely ends in death. One elephant usually emerges as the clear winner, leaving the other to sulk away. Could natural conditions help explain why that didn't happen to these two creatures? The Badlands are made up of volcanic clay which becomes extremely slick after a rainstorm. The chances are these two animals couldn't regain their feet once they'd fallen down. Although the slick turf may have sent them crashing to the earth, it was a bizarre coincidence that sealed their fate. Each mammoth had only one normal tusk and one broken stub. Their longer tusks locked together in a way that would have been impossible if they'd each had a complete pair of tusks. Trapped by the mud, the two rivals slowly died where they fell, unable to separate and unable to rise, locked together in a death grip for the ages. And today, these two prehistoric giants on display at the Trailside Museum in Nebraska provide a glimpse into a rarely preserved past. From secret tunnels to space capsules, mammoth tusks to manuscripts. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. 